Welcome to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast with Jane Rogers, where we discuss science to help prevent cognitive decline. Hey everyone, thanks for making the time to join us. Whether you're listening to the audio podcast or watching the video version on YouTube, we're glad you're here. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Nate Bergman, who is the Chief Science Officer at the Kemper Center for Cognitive Health and Wellness in Cleveland, Ohio. He's one of the preeminent brain health physicians in the U.S., where conventional Western medicine believes that all they can offer Alzheimer's patients is palliative care. Dr. Bergman has seen up close how cognitive decline is treatable and reversible. Today, he discusses a wide range of interventions that can slow or reverse this insidious disease. Well, Dr. Bergman, I would like to welcome you to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, it's great to be here, Jane. Thanks for having me. You see a whole bunch of people come into your clinic with cognitive issues. Tell me about what your days are like. Tell me about some of the the things that you are seeing now to help them. Yeah, I think the first thing that's really important to understand is that like cognitive decline used to be, and in I think many pockets is still sort of considered something that you wait on. We wait until you know you kind of got to take the keys away from dad or a spouse, and there's this sort of general. There's this remains this kind of prevalent notion that um, there's nothing you can do, so we just wait. And part of what, what we do at Kemper uh, and in general with our podcast, etc., uh, is get the word out. Now, there's there are things that you can do, as, as you know, um, well in advance, because when you're talking about something like Alzheimer's and potentially other dementias, um, even if you say the word Alzheimer's, people don't think um, like a 55 year old that's having trouble finding words or becoming less efficient at an office, uh, even a 65 year old. Typically, what people picture is, as you, you know, I think you're pretty familiar with this, someone who is in a nursing home who's got drool coming out of their mouth and they, they don't recognize their spouse, maybe their children. And that's people's notion and concept of Alzheimer's. And so it's, I think it's much more useful to think about uh, Alzheimer's like we think about cancers, uh, where we're looking in stages, right? So if I tell someone, oh, so-and-so has cancer, usually people's first reaction is, oh, you know, that's that's terrible. And then for people that have a pretty good amount of health literacy, or they kind of understand um, what cancer is, or they, they know about it, what kind, right? Is it breast cancer? Is it colon cancer? Is it prostate cancer? What kind is it? Because uh, that means something to a lot of us. Uh, some, and then we say, well, how far along is it? Or what stage is it? And I think we probably have to, and, and, and a lot of the field is shifting to thinking about cognitive decline as how far along, right? Is this in sort of the early, early stages? Is this in a milder stage? Or are we now talking about dementia, which is when usually people invoke the word Alzheimer's, they, it's to them, it's synonymous with dementia. So dementia really means that someone has a cognitive issue that's so profound. There's so much loss of brain and brain function that people can't get through their day independently. They may not be able to use a phone. They might be able to pay bills. Maybe if they were once driving, they they couldn't drive anymore. 
Um, and that's a, I mean, that's obviously life changing, game changing kind of loss of independence. But uh, what we're trying to do is get people aware that these changes typically happen much earlier. So three, five, 10, 20, maybe 30 years in advance. So if someone's parent mm -hmm. developed Alzheimer's around 75, we should probably be thinking about looking for ourselves around age 45 or 50. Uh, and so like that, it just, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very different way than many of us were could have um, raised or trained to think about uh, Alzheimer's or cognitive decline is looking early. So that's, I think that's the, the biggest message is that look early because there's a lot you can do. So look early. What are some of the things that someone should do to look at 45? Yeah. So the simplest things that are not being done are look at your blood pressure. Right. Look at the diet. Now, this uh, typically someone who's listening to a, a podcast like this um, is really familiar with um, sort of the, the edge of medicine, the limitations of what they can get in, let's say, a primary care office or a geriatrician's office or even a neurologist's office. Um, so but I still feel like because sometimes the kind of the more edgy the the, the healthcare environment is or the consumer of healthcare. People still overlook basic things like blood pressure. It's such an easy thing to get a number for. And um, I guess maybe you wouldn't be, but I'm still shocked by how many people will invest in 60, 80, $120 of vitamins or supplements every month sometimes, mm -hmm. but are not aware of what their blood pressure is. Mm -hmm. uh, blood pressure is, is really a, a tremendous way to, um, to sort of save your brain if you have a higher the pressure is, let's say, some of the magic numbers uh, you get in once we get to be full-grown adults in in the second half of our lives, whether that starts at 35, 45, 50, whenever that starts, we'll probably want to be looking and shooting for blood pressures, uh, you know, like still in the 120 ranges, you know, we'll, we'll let it drift up into 130s. But once that top number gets, you know, the systolic blood pressure gets above 140 and then the bottom number starts to trend consistently in the 80s and certainly into the 90s, you have to stop and think, you know, what's causing this? And some people, it's it's, it's simply um, wear and tear over time. Uh, obviously, we want to look at the basic things like smoking. Are people exercising? And if they're exercising, can their exercise be optimized? Is there more room to improve? Uh, there's, again, as your, as your crew and crowd know, there's all kinds of room to improve uh, with diet, dietary strategies, um, like the foods that we, that we eat, you know, things that are, you can use therapeutic diets, you know, vegan diets, sort of a therapeutic diet, a ketogenic diet might be a therapeutic diet. Uh, and, and then when those are kept up uh, at an extreme for long periods of time, they might have a side effect. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's, I mean, I can go down the list of, of basic stuff, but smoking, drinking too much, not sleeping enough, um, not exercising kind of the right way, not keeping someone's brain challenged and active. Mm -hmm. um, those are some of the, like the most basic things are probably not news to anybody, but it's, it's really kind of surprising um, on the basic level, like what, what people are not aware of. And then if you get into sort of someone like you, I remember when you, uh, when we first met, you had, you know, like it was like a 30 column Excel spreadsheet <laughs> where you, you know, like had all the values of labs and, um, like, so I have, I have a number of patients like that, that are, that are very organized and are able to 
um, assimilate information for themselves. So, and then continue to read and continue to, to be active. And for those kinds of, uh, for those kinds of folks, so I think the, the difference in what we can provide as a, as a physician is, is, is a more of a, a sounding board, right? Cause there's a lot of stuff that's experimental and it. it's amazing how people kind of run around, um, talking about how things are proven or, mm-hmm. or disproven. And, um, I think over time, what the people that choose to continue to work with me, uh, as, as a physician or, or really many of the physicians that we, that we're familiar with is, um, to to provide information, to provide sort of a consultation, sort of consultation information to be a sounding board to think through issues. Because um, there's a lot of stuff in the healthcare community, um, I think on the traditional side where people are not open, you get a neurologist saying nutrition doesn't matter when it comes to Parkinson's or nutrition doesn't matter when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. Um, and those people are sometimes working in board certified at very, very well credentialed institutions. I've heard this kind of over and over and nothing could be further than the truth, right? It's just not the kind of evidence they're used to being able to slide into a 15, 20 minute office visit. And on the other side, there's, um, I think there's treatments in the so-called alternative or functional medicine community that are, um, that are touted as highly, uh, uh, effective, uh, and have evidence um, when the kind of evidence they have uh, is not the kind of evidence people are used to be, like meaning it's never been done, never been used on a human being or something like that. Like we have one uh, animal, a mouse trial mm-hmm. with it. So, you know, I, I find myself often somewhere in between those two. And like, maybe that's no man's land sometimes, uh, like where there's no person uh, here or there, we're never necessarily a team, but mm-hmm. the the main thing that we're trying to do is improve the lives of patients, and um, everybody has a a different level of appetite on the patient side and as individuals. I think we all have a different appetite for the amount of time, energy, and resources we want to spend on this. So we're always kind of looking for are, are there ways to simplify? Are there ways to simplify? Because um, like. Mm-hmm that's the most important thing in, in, in the sort of ultra busy, ultra fast modern world, the simpler we can get interventions that people can do with consistency, uh, especially early on. If you're talking about prevention, uh, starting at 45, 50 years old, um, those are the, the, those are kind of the key things. What, what can people sustain and maintain over time? So what are you seeing in those people who come in early that has worked really worked to help change their trajectory? What are like, a couple yeah. of things that come to mind. Oh my gosh, I did this, yeah. and and Susan got so much better in a couple of years. She- yeah. So always, if somebody hasn't tr- um, messed around with their diet yet, meaning they're still sort of eating a standard American diet, mm-hmm. always see people get better just with basic stuff, getting processed foods out. Um, mm-hmm. So things that spike the blood sugar, um, really anything that comes out of a bag in a box. We try to keep it simple: processed foods. Um, and the addition of vegetables. Of course, we like people to have kind of like a, an addition of, uh, of, of, of organic vegetables if possible, but. And no um, gluten. Even if it's not. Mm-hmm. And so, so there, so, so you jumped ahead, right? So, well, people saw no gluten or no dairy or no, like, I wouldn't say that for everybody. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's just not a place that people can start, uh, for everybody. But if, if someone's already up and disciplined enough to kind of get rid of, processed food, mm-hmm. uh, then we can see. So I'll tell you an interesting story about gluten. So we have um, a patient of ours now. He's in his mid, uh, 
early mid seventies, brilliant, brilliant person came to see us from out of the country. And, um, uh, a story of really just a lot of toxic exposures because of, um, jobs he was involved in, uh, as an engineer and, um, it's kind of this brilliant and amazing family, very, very proactive, but this man is very demented. He's had years of high blood pressure, years of high cholesterol that were kind of uh, uh, incompletely uh, attended to and incompletely de dealt with. So he's got really a lot of brain damage and a long journey to come to see us in Cleveland. And, you know, this, this is a man who's so demented that when he, when you just ask him to kind of from a sitting position right next to a chair, ask him to sit down, mm -hmm not able to sit down, not able to sort of get organized enough to follow a direction to sit down. So, you know, quite far along, uh, full care, right, full care in terms of his uh, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. And so um, typically we would start pretty simply with this, you know, try to get the processed food out. And he was already eating a fairly, fairly healthy diet. But when you, we kind of took a fine tooth comb through a three day diet journal, which is a really uh, nice hack that people can do. Like if they want to really know what they're doing, really know what they're eating, literally writing or in some places we'll take pictures, sort of a, a, a pictorial um, diary, if you will, mm -hmm. of, of the food that we ate. Um, it tells a whole different story often than what people think they're eating uh, day to day because they failed to mention when they grabbed this or when they grabbed that, or it was 1030 at night and they grabbed something or, you know, a second or third glass of wine, etc. So those are the kinds of things that add up. But like if someone has already given up um, processed food, uh, etc., like these people, when they were staying in Cleveland with some family, uh, the family members were gluten free. And this is a person that the, the, the patient, in, the seven, in his seventies, who's with really you know, advanced, sort of advanced dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, um, really had no choice other than to be gluten free. And I, this is typically just eating what's put in front of him. And what they saw was, um, within two weeks of having this gluten free diet, and this is not typical. I don't see this with everybody, but um, a. Uh, he experiences night terrors. So this is something that uh, runs in his family. Um, we'll wake up uh, in a nightmare, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes hysterical. Um, so sleeping improved, didn't need any sleeping medicine and, uh, or nor did he need melatonin. Um, and it's just supplement hormone that we often give to help people sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was remembering things with more ease. He remembered uh, who his son was. He remembered who his daughter was. Uh, he recognized um, uh, the voice of a family member on a phone call. So from just two weeks. how do you explain that, right? How do you explain that? Um, so that's, we don't see that with everybody and I can't get everybody to, to give up gluten. It's just not, um, it's not in the realm of possibility uh, in terms of a starting point for some people. But yeah, I mean, cutting out things that are typically inflammatory, this idea of food sensitivities. Um, so whether it's gluten or it's dairy or it's uh, soy, you know, we had just another kind of amazing story of a person that had decades of chest pain and stomach pain, went on an elimination diet with our uh, dietitian. And, um, you know, the guy was on like seven, eight medications um, and stomach 
is like has radically improved with simple breathing exercises. Um, a lot of his chest pain that he needs benzodiazepines for, which can, as you know, like something like Valium or uh, Xanax, those are benzodiazepine families of medicines. Mm-hmm. So those have um, gone away. So, so food, um, food, breathing exercises, checking blood pressure. Those are things that people like. And then the other huge one, as you probably know, is exercise. Yeah. Right. And exercise is not a, it seems simple because yeah, we all kind of know what's good with exercise. But when it comes to cross training the brain, we like to think about exercise in um, kind of three bins enough. And the exercise trials are, by the way, are, are coming for doses in terms of prevention for, uh, for Alzheimer's. And to start, it's like, you know, just getting into your body, right? Just getting into movement and getting comfortable with any kind of movement or, or exercise if, if someone's not sort of a lifelong exerciser is important. But then when it comes to cross-training kinds of exercises that, that are really good for both mood and the, de- the development of a healthy brain and body, and we like to say the brain body, because the brain is in the body, right? The, the body uh, is, is, is part brain, like our whole, our whole body. It's not just the brain up here. So what's an example of a cross-training exercise? Yeah, so there are, three, there, are th- there are three kinds of exercises when we talk about um, cross-training exercises. Uh, there's cardiovascular, um, and we talk okay. about resistance. So cardiorobic, cardiovascular, you know, so the Jane Fonda, or, um, like that's the, that's the kind of classic. Then there's, um, we think about resistance, high intensity, um, mm-hmm. if possible, but, um, but resistance training. So where you're pushing against something, it could be something like as simple as push-ups, uh, sit-ups, and then certainly weights in that category. Mm-hmm. And then third, um, it's like motor and coordinative, right? And so this, maybe you know, maybe you're not familiar with it, Jane, but um, most people think, let's say the back of the brain, if you just, there's a little bump on the back side of your brain, like on the back right. side of your head, and um, it sort of, it, it protrudes out and kind of if you if you pointing right right towards back towards your nose on the back um, there's an area in the brain called the cerebellum and the cerebellum is sort of long known for oh that's the center of coordination and balance but it turns out that's only about 40 to 60 percent of its function it's actually much more involved in executive function making decisions helping us stay efficient with work mood regulation than we once thought so even things like so anything that has steps, coordination. So Zumba is actually a, a good idea. Any kind of dance, dance might actually have the most data uh, for this kind of, um, for, for, for these advantages to the brain. Um, even yoga and Tai Chi have some um, or confer some, some, uh, some advantage. So that I think the ideal workout plan is some combination. What I do for myself is we try to do two days plus a week where we're doing Mm-hmm. Weight. I'm doing kind of weight training that also has core and then cardiovascular as well. Two other days a week, at least, where we're doing some kind of balance, motor, and coordinative training. So I'm a I'm a dance fan. Uh, we have a bunch of kids. Sometimes we'll try to do dance parties at home. Uh, and then you know, like walking's still good. Walking's probably not adequate enough to really move the needle. It's kind of a maintenance. But uh, walking, walking with vigor, anything you can do with real vigor to get your heart rate up, to sort of get huffing and puffing, to get that sort of mm-hmm. that, that level of what we call moderate intensity, to get that level of intensity, something beyond the regular intensity as many days as possible uh, from the week, mm-hmm. that, that's the goal. Does, does something that crosses the midline work well, like ping pong? 
crossing the center line. So you're, you're using coordination for something like that. Is that, yeah. Or- so yeah, so you're getting, uh, so you're, so you're, so you're, so you're getting advanced. Yeah. So anything like, so, so racket sports, mm-hmm. um, almost every form of movement, like mentioned, martial arts, Tai Chi, yoga, all of those things will cross the midline. And if you, if you participate in classes, like you'll see that the brain seems to, um, uh, like wire it up better. If you can do that, um, like crossing the midline, like you said, taking your right hand and crossing over to the left, um, there, um, there's a, there's a good, pretty, pretty long existing literature on how that's helpful. We're also getting into like primitive reflexes exercises with some of our groups uh, as well. There's, there's, um, when, when you talk about these kinds of, um, what we'll call bottom up, bottom up approaches, um, from the body that have an influence in the brain, there's quite a bit that can be done and, and crossing the midline. Um, crossing the midline is one of them. I don't know if it's just as simple as crossing the midline. I mean, that's what physical therapists are using, occupational therapists are using, you know, post-stroke recovery. There's, there's been quite a bit known on that. And then um, when you add that, you combine those kinds of things with the other pieces. So the um, choreography piece in dance or just movement and expressive dance uh, or yoga or Tai Chi, like you're going to get um, these sort of combinations of benefits. You're stacking benefits together. So you have, you have diet. You have exercise as two of the major interventions right away if someone comes in. What's your third one? Yeah, so it depends on um, someone's story. Like we usually have to ask what's going on with people, but um, either sleep or stress is the third one. Um, Sleep or stress is the third one. And usually these are pretty intertwined because a lot of times if people are struggling with stress and most people over the last, you know, lived through 2020, um, had some, like there was definitely a shift in sleep and definitely stress for people, um, you know, like high stress or high cortisol. So stress being defined as um, changes in our external environment or internal environment, but typically it's our external environment that require uh, energy, require quite a bit of energy for our nervous system and immune systems to respond to. Um, our, our, our minds and brains are programmed for stability and certainty. So we seek stability and certainty. We seek evidence. We seek uh, simple answers um, or predictable answers, at least if they're not simple. Um, and so usually we have to talk about what's what's stressing someone out or why are they not sleeping? Um, so stress can be a, a tricky one um, because there's stress that's um, inherited. There might be stress that's generational things that happened to people growing up that have been either ignored or incompletely dealt with or, um, and, and they continue to create, a, a, like patterns of behavior or of thinking or emotion that, um, can be harmful. So the, the adverse childhood events, uh, study, um, that was the original data was done, you know, in Kaiser in the 1990s. Um, I think a lot of people have heard of ACEs or ACE, ACE, ACE questionnaires. Um, so let's say they boiled it down to the, uh, on some level, like, so there's a lot of layers to this study, but the basics is you know, 10 questions. Uh, like, hey, did you have someone that would hit you, slap you growing up? Uh, did you, you would your parents get divorced? Were you around people with a mental illness or alcoholics, drug abuse, etc.? And out of, if you get, you know, the, the magic number, if you have four or more on an ACEs questionnaire and you can just Google ACEs and see what your score is, like there are all kinds of associations to diseases, disease states, um, or abnormal health outcomes among them, dementia, um, there's, according to one study, there's like a six, six and a half times 
increase if your score was four out of 10 or more, five, six, seven, eight, nine out of 10, there's like right. a six, six and a half time increase of getting dementia, right? So there are things that are incompletely dealt with those kinds of stressors and there's stressors that are happening actively, right? Actively. And there's all kinds of flavors of stress. And it's probably for, for, for like a different, for a different, um, different, uh, podcast interview, but we do a lot of referral for therapy, um, movement therapies. I'm very big on movement therapies, uh, but then just talking therapy and then learning how to breathe, uh, learning how to breathe is, is, um, almost like a forgotten art, right? In the days where I'm staring into cameras all day, uh, I'm staring into a zoom machine or a, like a, a computer all day. And I usually have a watch or a ring that tells me, um, when I should stand up, remind me to stretch my legs. It's all good. So we're relying on technology to kind of try to help us, help us adapt. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's actually a nice adaptation. I think the sort of extended embodied cognition or the idea that we have, we have some technology that extends beyond our own nervous system to help us adapt to the stress. Uh, and then on the sleep side, sleep one is a huge, like it's, this is like a, this feels like an uphill battle right now. Um, because we do a lot of querying for, you know, it's over a hundred sleep disorders. Really? That many? Okay. Uh, worldwide. Yeah. And the, but the two commonest tend to be insomnia and sleep apnea. And, um, insomnia people usually have a pretty good sense of if they sleep well or not. Uh, but the sleep apnea is the one we, we find missed quite a bit. Um, and I would say, I don't know the numbers right now, but probably I have a pretty low bar for my patients, a pretty low threshold to send someone to a sleep doctor, um, for let's say a sleep study or a sleep evaluation. There are some gold standard things that people can do like an Epworth sleepiness scale. You can go out and just, you know, Google Epworth sleep in a scale, see what your scores are, you know, how easily you fall asleep, how tired are you during the day to wake up? With, um, uh, sometimes people wake up with headaches, but, um, more and more attention's being paid to, um, to the entire airway. So I'll always, almost always look in someone's mouth, see if they have like a, a patent airway. If the airway looks small, I mean, you look in the back mm -hmm. of someone's mouth and this is something you can Google. You can Google a Malam Patty score, M A L L A M P T I, Malam Patty or P A T I, excuse me, Malam Patty score. And you know, this is something that anesthesiologists use typically <clears throat> to see if someone's going to be a difficult intubation, mm -hmm. right? Because the, the, the anesthesiologist, part of the, what they do is, under surgery or when someone's uh, under anesthesia, they have to keep people breathing. So they have to put a breathing tube, they have to put them on a ventilator basically. Uh, and so they are experts in seeing, is this airway open? And when you look in the back of someone's mouth, um, the less of the soft palate, the less of the uvula, which some people mm -hmm. think of the tonsils, but they're, it's the uvula hanging down, the less you can see in the back of that mouth, there's like four stages, the higher, like if stage three or four, sometimes that's an indication that the airway is smaller and then there may be less oxygen getting down into someone's uh, lungs and into their heart, their brain, their, their, their blood system uh, night overnight. And so we send people to uh, probably more than others to a sleep doctor for, to her, for evaluations. Uh, and then even when people get sleep evaluations, and now I'm talking more about people that are already a little bit sick, they have mild cognitive impairment, which is a pre sort of a pre dementia, pre Alzheimer state, uh, or they have full blown, uh, they're in sort of an early stage of, 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 of cognitive impairment of, of Alzheimer's uh, or other kinds of dementia. If they have these, right, 
that means every if they have something like an obstructive sleep apnea, that means every single night they're not getting fully restorative sleep. So that means you know one way of thinking about that is every single night they're getting a little bit amount, a little bit of brain damage, which is a which is a problem, right? And so they'll oftentimes go to a sleep doctor, get a sleep study, and it'll say sort of a mild sleep apnea, and and they'll be told by a sleep doctor saying, well, you know, just a mild problem, just a, it's not an issue, it's not worth treating. And, you know, if, if someone's taking a, a proactive stance or a proactive, they're either trying to prevent or they're in the throes of, an, of, a, of a problem, a cognitive issue, to say that a, a little bit of, of brain damage uh, every single night is okay, probably to, you know, to me in my mind is an inadequate answer. Um, and so that, that's an area that sleep, sleep medicine is, is an area where right now it feels a little bit uphill because sometimes, you know, even when we'll refer people to sleep doctors and they get their sleep evaluations still people are sort of waved off as eh, you know it's it's uh, no big deal it's no big deal and for i understand the perspective of it's not being a big deal from from there but when you string together these sort of little hits these little tacks on the brain over time you 5 10 15 years that might add, that might add up to quite a bit of damage it's a big deal yeah. So with your patients, have you seen success with a CPAP or with dental work to, to actually try to increase the size of that palate in the back? Yeah, both. Yeah, both. I think it's just what people are up for. Um, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. people just get a mouthpiece from CVS. They'll go to a dentist, uh, like, a, mm-hmm. uh, like a American Academy of Dental and Sleep Medicine a dentist, uh, um, a fellowship mm-hmm. trained person where they'll get a mouthpiece. Sometimes it's a mandibular advancement device. Um, there are other uh, light wires, ALF, and there's there's a, like, there's a lot of other approaches um, that may be not standard, um, but uh, there's 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 quite a bit that people can do other than a CPAP machine. Although CPAP machine is still gold standard, there's m- we've had many patients have procedures, surgeries, uh, and yeah, and 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 like usually what will happen is to answer your your original question, when people come in with a subjective issue or they're having cognitive issues. Uh, and they and they if they haven't tried any of the, the what we just talked about. The vast vast majority of people are, are having improvements, you know, within a couple weeks, couple months, and certainly if they're continuing the kinds of changes, they're sustaining the kinds of changes that we've just talked about. Um, they'll have you know they kind of get better and better. Like it's it's amazing when people act early how much they can improve. You got the best job in the world. <laughs> you really do. You're helping so many people. So as you look into the future with with this issue, what's on the horizon? What do you see that will be able to help us in a year or five years that are already in clinical trials? Yeah, well, I mean, for you're talking about for Alzheimer's or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do think we'll probably have medicines pretty soon. I mean, the, like the aducagenumab, the adjuhelm, the one was approved. I mean, you know, I understand why people wouldn't want to use it. Uh, but if, if you're sort of the kind of person that's like, hey, medicines is my thing, and you know, I won't, I'm not going to do any of the, the changing my diet, et cetera, so you're just going to wait around for, for the medicine. So I, I do think that medicines are kind of on the way for, for Alzheimer's. Um, I, I don't think it's that new, but I see people getting uh, more serious about it. Fixing dental issues, uh, particularly periodontal issues, um, so the, the the parts of the teeth that kind of surround the actual teeth, um, those can harbor uh, the kind of inflammation that will hold on to infection. Will hold on to infections, or at least they will. organisms mm-hmm. uh, like bugs that are associated with 
brain disease and heart disease uh, and other things. So if you have a root canal that doesn't go right, and yeah. I harbor some of those problems. Yeah, yeah, or or just like periodontitis, like peri periodontal disease, where there's mm -hmm. sort of inflammation going on um, uh, right below the tooth level. Um, so, so, and these are things again, like they're not maybe they're not as as a sort of like sexy as some of the. Um, the, the latest and greatest, but they're super, super correlated. And, and when people do these, like I'm, I'm sort of of the opinion that if it's real, like if the, if the data is, if the data is there, it should also work in real life. Like when people do the treatment, they should feel better, mm -hmm. right? Assuming that mm -hmm. it's sustained long enough. And so, um, this is one of those that, um, we've been, um, hip to for a little while. Uh, but, um, I I hear from some colleagues that are, uh, more and more aggressive about fixing some of the dental issues that when they fix dental issues, uh, sometimes we see both issues, not just of brain, but also of mood, that mood can, um, oh, that's can improve, interesting. which is, which is interesting too. things like anxiousness and uh, insomnia, um, may have some improvements. Um, other things that we're like excited about, and this is, I think, I think it depends on who, who you're talking to and kind of where they're at, what stage of, uh, if they're ill or not. Um, mm -hmm. and it seems, again, these things seem cliche, but we hammer on them. We go over and over and over and back to them because they're, because they're basic and they work. When we're working with people, um, let's say that are brought, you know, we're talking about prevention or we're talking about uh, intervention for people who are already sick with things like Alzheimer's here. We're talking about, question. I'm talking about prevention. Prevention. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So being really um, clear on why am I doing this, right? What's my level of commitment? Uh, because um, most of the reasons that people fall off are not because, um, not because they can't do stuff. It's mostly because they're not clear on why am I doing this, right? If I have to say no to, even if I know dairy, but I have to say no to um, like, the next scoop of vegan ice cream at night, right? Why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? Because I don't want, because I don't want the damage. And if you start to, if you're someone who's in a, in a position where you can check, let's say your blood sugar, you can get either a continuous glucose monitor, or you can just get for, you know, 50, 80, $100, you can go to CVS, Walgreens or Amazon and get like a, an ability to check your blood sugar. And you start to check your blood sugar 30, 60 minutes after, um, 90 minutes even after you eat. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wow, I had no idea that after I eat white rice, my blood sugar spikes to like a diabetic range, right? What can I do about that? Or you get something like an aura ring or something that you use measuring your HRV your heart rate variability, which is, you know, one sort of measure you could think about it, of, of our body's ability to handle stress you know, is one way to think about that. And um, when you start to get that kind of information, and it's, it's simplified and, and usable, you can start to, you can start to do some of these, some of these, um, hacks for yourself. And what we'll see is even sometimes like people listening to a book, listening to someone's voice, um, and it doesn't have to be in guided meditation, but it's sort of focusing people's minds kind of on the here and now, and in a trajectory that has purpose, you'll see some of these parameters change. In other words, blood sugar is affected by our exercise. Blood sugar is certainly affected by what we eat most directly. Mm -hmm. But then also the mindset that we carry, how much sleep we're getting, like all of these things will impact stress numbers, cortisol, 
heart rate variability. And then over time, those, those, the improvements uh, in those areas and those parameters um, are kind of equal or approximate to improvements uh, with brain. So like just getting simple feedback information on a watch or on a ring or something like that, and then thinking about the things that you're doing so that you can tweak them and then having groups of people that are thinking about these with you as well. So a podcast like this, where you have like a, a group of people, you kind of curate a group of people that are, that are looking at these things can be really, really helpful. Um, it's all about community. If we have support around us, we can really succeed with this. If you're all by yourself, it's a lot harder. Yeah. Cause you know, like you can run products by each other and you know, where can I get this? Where can I get that? And cheaper, like all the, all the stuff people know. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, the other thing that we're, um, you know, I've, I've been pretty excited about, uh, that we're, I would say we're at this point beyond the kicking the tires, uh, on, um, mm -hmm. is the use of technologies that can accelerate, um, accelerate uh, changes in the brain. So like for our podcast, we haven't, we haven't, um, we haven't released the episodes. I just interviewed um, Ben Hampstead, who's an NIH-funded University of Michigan um, researcher that is um, funded to study kind of like you think about like the aging brain. The aging brain, we all start to, our brains all start to age from the time we're in our late 20s, as you probably know. So we all have, probably all of our listeners uh, have uh, an aging brain, right? So there's very few people that are probably listening to us that are older than 27, 20, or younger than 27, 28 years old. But, uh, but there are more and more, there are more and more people thinking about this at a young age, which is kind of exciting. Um, but uh, we're thinking about how do we influence the activity of, of, an, of an aging brain? So just like over time, just like our joints, our skin, our muscles, get older, so does our brain. And uh, a feature of an aging brain is usually that it, there's certain things that are more difficult, right? It's a little bit, our, the, the sort of the total miles per hour, the speed of the brain, uh, processing speed, overall speeds called a posterior dominant rhythm on uh, like an EEG or on like a, like, a, like a kind of test that will look at um, how someone's brain is functioning in terms of its um, uh, overall speed and, and uh, efficiency. When we start to see that, um, there are technologies that you can use in addition to changing diet, exercise, sleep, stress, all of the kind of basic stuff, checking labs, inflammation, uh, hormones, etc. all the things that I'm sure you'll be talking about on this podcast. There are still more things you can do that are, um, it can be relatively simple in some cases. By adding energy to the brain in areas um, that uh, the brain can be influenced the most, right? Uh, we are one of the, and one of the most exciting things we're talking about now is the field of connectomics, right? People know about a microbiome and some people are learning about a connectome, but the connectome being sort of the, the totality of connections uh, that we have in our brains and nervous systems, right? What's um, sort of shaking out of this is that our brains um, work and make decisions and think in networks. And what we mean by networks is sort of like committees. Uh, so just like you have, in order to pass something, let's say uh, in healthcare, you have an idea, but then you gotta go to Congress and you gotta go to the Senate, you go to the Senate Finance Committee, you gotta go on the, you know, so the, the, the House side, you gotta go to 
health, education, labor, and pensions committee, and ways and means, and find, like, and you have to find even in those committees who are the most influential members, and you know, lobbyists influence at those sort of influential points. So there are technologies now that can a get a sense of where the breakdown is in the networks of these brains, and then where we can add small amounts of energy, sort of safe uh, amounts of energy. Um, to those areas to get a positive effect. An example of this is like the V-Light, V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T. It's a Canadian company. Um, you know, sort of under the the auspices or the or the, uh, the the umbrella of something called photobiomodulation, low level light or low level laser therapy. Oh, you go one right there. Yeah, got one. So yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's one of the older ones. It's exciting. Yeah, and um, and so you'll see. We see sometimes these really startling, staggering uh, improvements in people that are sicker and then people that are younger that are just trying things, right? So we use uh, transcranial direct current stimulation um, to improve working memory. We have an environment we built, um, we developed where we're taking people that have cognitive impairment that are really trying to stay at home. Um, mm-hmm. and we're training them for two hours with everything we're talking about, uh, exercise with, you know, dual tasking. So we're, we're giving people both intense physical exercise across the domains that we talked about before, cardioaerobic resistance and motor and coordination, but they're wearing technology that accelerates their learning. Right. And then we have a cognitive curriculum, another hour of cognitive curriculum where we're training aspects of thinking memory um, working memory, visual spatial reasoning, visual memory, that's like all different kinds of um, aspects of, of uh, mood and of, of, of mind and brain function that can be measured. Uh, and they're wearing, um, and they're wearing some of the technology uh, that you just showed uh, the V light. Uh, and then we're collecting data over time. And we're, we're, we're uh, trying to confirm what we've seen kind of anecdotally that um, when people do this work, they can enjoy more dependence for longer periods of time and really push back Excellent. and not just accept the idea that cognitive aging is inevitable. Right. And so mm-hmm. like this guy, Ben Hampstead, uh, Adam Woods, and then October, there's, there's people all over the, the country and really the world um, that are doing this at an academic level. So that was like, for me, it was a really kind of a fun interview to see that mm-hmm. we were, um, you know, we're tracking in the same direction as some of these uh, serious neuroscientists that are at academic with academic affiliations. Dr. Bergman, you've been so kind with your time. Thank you very much. So if someone is watching or listening and they want to get a hold of you, how can they? They just go to KemperWellness.com. It's uh, thank you for asking. It's uh, Kemper with a K, K E M P E R wellness.com. And um, we'll be happy to talk to you. And can you talk to someone like on Zoom from anywhere in the country or do they have to drive to Cleveland? Yeah. So if they want to be a patient, they got to definitely have to come in, but we can talk to anybody in a consultation, sort of an informational way um, from over the phone for sure. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. You have a great day now. Okay. You've been listening to the cutting edge health podcast created and hosted by Jane Rogers. The website is cuttingedgehealth.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and would very much appreciate your writing a review. They help a lot and we read each one. Any information shared on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Guest opinions are their own. This podcast is not responsible for the veracity of their statements. 
The comments expressed are not medical advice. Do not use any of this information without first talking to your doctor. This podcast and Jane Rogers disclaim responsibility for any adverse effects from the use of any information presented. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.